Spectrum's next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Hello and good afternoon. My name is Renee Rao, and I'll be hosting today's show. Did you know UC Berkeley has an energy office and an energy incentive program? Our guests on Spectrum this week are Chuck Frost, the first-ever energy manager of the UC Berkeley campus, and Aaron Fenley, the energy office communication specialist. They talked with Brad Swift about the programs the energy office has launched to drive down electricity use on the Berkeley campus. Here's the interview. Chuck Frost and Aaron Fenley, welcome to Spectrum. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. You work at the University of California Berkeley energy office. How did that come into being? Well, the university hired a consultant to look at ways to save money on the campus. One of the things they came up with was to reestablish the energy office. Yeah, and that was about three or four years ago when Bain Consulting came in to check out what areas we could save money um, on campus, and that was everything from payroll to energy management. So we dove in from there, and it's part of the operational excellence program, actually. Through the Energy Management Initiative, we have created the Energy Office. We have also created an extensive outreach program, which has its own goals, an energy incentive program, which has financial goals, and then an energy policy, which provides a framework. What other goals might there be? Well, the Energy Office actually uh, tracks and monitors and assists the campus in reducing energy and we try to improve the building performance also. Is there anything that's really different the way your energy office is doing it that distinguishes you from other places? I think it's the number of dashboards we're using. We've got almost 100 installed on the smart meters and then also the incentive program where you could put the bill out into the campus. So the 28 operating units, if they beat their baseline, we will give them money, and this year we're giving them about $870,000 back to the campus. But it can go the other way starting next year, and they could owe us two. So it can go either way. It's a carrot and a stick. But out of the 28 operating units this year, 26 received money, and two would owe us. And uh, our goal is really to have no one owe us and put the money back into the campus. And how is it that you tie into the dashboard with the data? Where do you collect the data? How do you tie it in? Each building has a meter that monitors the incoming power to the building. And that goes to an obvious is the name of the system. And then the Pulse Energy pulls off the obvious server to populate the dashboards and kind of throws the bells and whistles on it. Are you able to use the data to reflect on the building's efficiency it's, systems? It's, it actually can be used as a tool to identify when you have problems in the building. It's a, It'll throw up a flag if you're drawing too much energy after it learns your building. It really knows how you'll draw power on a certain day in the weather and things like that. That's the model that it actually forms. It takes a few months to learn the building and actually a really a full you know, year. 
and then once it identifies and learns and models your building, then you can actually have threshold or limits that will flag your attention if you have drawing too much or not enough. It can go either way, but it's a good indication. It's a lot better to have sub-metering in a building, but it's, it's very powerful just to have you know, the smart meter in a building. And is there a move afoot to go to the sub-metering? Absolutely. Unfortunately, it just comes with a price, and so it's very expensive. But with technology changing and wireless and things like that are being used a little bit more, I think it's coming down, so it'll probably be doable in the future. If you look at all the utilities on campus, we average between 30 and 35 million. That's for water, steam, gas, and electricity. And electricity uh, itself is about 17 million a year. Yeah, that's what we paid last mm-hmm. year. And so year to year, as units start to save, you're able to give what back to them? When the the main meter at the campus drops down, that that's how we really determine. And then we break it down into buildings, how much each of the buildings. But we actually look at the main meter also. And then we were showing for the first time in a number of years where we actually did reduce. And at an average of 2% creep is what we saw since the 90s. So, so we can really avoid that creep by keeping the engineers in buildings. They've been divided into zones to work in specific areas on the campus in order to understand the buildings, know what's going on there, work with the building managers in order to keep them tuned up so that the creep doesn't happen. (laughs) And that's the front line? Yes. is, Is the building engineers and building managers? Well, through the energy office, there are stationary engineers, electrical engineers that are working in the zones with building managers in order to make that work happen. So even though they're skilled trades... Our goal is a little bit different than a traditional station engineer example where we're looking at kilowatts and BTUs. We want to help in any way we can and improve the building, but our focus is really energy. So we work with the shops, but we have a different spin on it. So this past year, a lot of the work that was very significant in reducing energy use was through variable fan drives? Yeah, variable frequency drive. So anytime you can vary the flow on a large motor, whether it's pumping water or pumping air, you can actually, uh, once you reduce that, substantial savings. So we saw a lot of opportunities in uh, repairing drives, putting in new drives and things like that. You kind of have more of a consultant role in a Mm. sense. We like to say we're looking and... um, Some people will call it low-hanging fruit. They don't cost a lot of money to invest in, but could be schedule changes. You could be heating and cooling at the same time. There's actually a lot of savings in those two areas, and really you don't have to spend a lot. You just have to identify what um, an example in this building we're in right now. It was a while ago. They actually had a painting project, so they wanted the fans to run 24-7. And it was one of the professors that noticed, well, look at the dashboard and how come the energy use went up and it didn't go back down. So by him asking that question, we investigated and we found out that they had put all the fans in hand. There was no schedule to shut down at night. So that that was about a $45,000 avoidance if it would have been allowed to run the rest of the year. So those kind of things, that's what the dashboard really helps. A lot of people, a lot of eyes looking so you can see what's going on and start asking the questions, why do I have this little blip of power? Why does it jump up like this? And the energy officer will go out and investigate it, and sometimes it's just interviewing people. Sometimes it's walking through mechanical rooms, and every building has a story, so you have to kind of dig into it. Mm -hmm. 
You're listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Our guests today are Chuck Frost and Aaron Fenley from the UC Berkeley Energy Office. In the next segment, they talk about changing behavior to save energy. And what sort of outreach programs are you operating to try to just drum up support and Mm-hmm. awareness. We do have a energy management resource center right here in Barrows Hall, room 192, and people can stop by and pick up posters and flyers and light switch stickers, can get information about saving energy specifically in labs, residence halls, and office spaces. You can also come there or email us at mypower@berkeley.edu and set up a time to have our student team. We have an amazing student team who conducts surveys in offices and labs. We come in and take a nice observational survey of what's going on in the spaces, um, leave stickers and materials to help that area find out more about what they can do. People here on campus are already doing so much to save energy, but there hasn't been a single place that we've gone to that we haven't found a few recommendations uh, to give. So we provide personalized recommendations to that area. Then we post those on our website so they can be downloaded by the whole office or whole lab. And how would someone get involved if they're interested in becoming part of the student team? We just hired our student team for the semester, so all of our positions are filled currently. However, you can stay in touch with us through our website and through Facebook, where I post different internships that are available, and they come up each semester. On the maintenance and new building side of things, there's obviously an ongoing maintenance that's required by all the buildings. And are you folks involved in specifying improvements that could be integrated into that maintenance process? We actually try to help with the maintenance, too. But, again, we are looking at uh, everything we do has to be related to energy savings. So things like just clean filters will save energy because there's less um, draw on the fans. It's an ongoing challenge, you know, with the funding and and things like that for adequate uh, maintenance. But it's improving and it's starting to turn, which is really good. It really needs it. The campus, because of the age, does require a lot of maintenance on the different systems and things like that. And with new construction, do you get involved in decisions that are being made about what to put in the various buildings? That would be the uh, policy that Aaron was mentioning earlier. We actually, with the new energy policy, we try to insert ourselves very early into the design phases of the project. Actually, in the very early design conception is where we want to be inserted so we can talk about that. And are there other sort of stakeholders, groups like yours, that get drawn into that process? About energy efficiency or yeah, other things? Well, other things even. Well, I mean, you could buildings. relate it to accessibility issues in a building. It's a very similar type of thing. You're going to build that in in the beginning to campus buildings these days. It's not going to be an afterthought, and we want energy efficiency to be seen the same way. And are you, you're pretty much limited to off-the-shelf kind of technology at this point. There's no way for you to really work with anyone on campus on creating some new technology that might... Well, we are working with certain groups. The Center for Built Environment, they're doing a research project right now on personal comfort units, which the focus is right at your desk and not a zone, the whole room. And they're actually having some pretty amazing results. They have also a heating and cooling chair. So you actually don't heat the whole building, just the areas you need. And so 
The goal is to try to get people to trade in their heaters that they've got underneath the desk that they bring in from home and they don't <laughs> want anybody to know about that draw 1,500 watts of power with one of these more efficient uh, personal comfort units, which draw about 40 watts. So they're actually, I had one in my office, and I, I hated to give it up, but they had to use it for the research. But it really works good. It's very interesting, some of the work they're doing. I also worked with some students in computer science in order to help us develop a mobile available site for our dashboards, because right now Pulse dashboards are flash and they don't display on mobile devices or tablets. So some of our computer science students helped to develop an HTML version where we're showcasing about half of the buildings that are available on Pulse. However, you can access those through your mobile device now. And is it just a matter of time before you get them all, all the buildings done that way? I certainly hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Ongoing project. (laughs) Yes, it is an ongoing project. There is opportunity for innovation that you're finding within the campus. People are coming to you with ideas, which you encourage, obviously. Yes, definitely. Absolutely. That's exciting. That's the, the best part of my job, actually, is meeting some of the people I'd never get to meet otherwise that are doing some really neat research. And it's cutting edge. And to look at the campus as a lab, it really is because of the diversity in buildings. And we've got some buildings that are 100 years old. And On the behavioral side, what sort of push do you make there and how successful is that? We have been developing a lot of elements for our behavior change campaign, the My Power campaign, reaching out to all of campus saying that everyone has a role to play in reducing energy use. We can all turn the lights off. We can all unplug things when we're done with them. We have put out about 10,000 stickers around campus reminding people to shut the lights off, reminding people to turn their monitors off. Those have been put up through student teams. They've also been put up through our power agent team, which is a group of very committed champions of energy efficiency here on campus, most of them staff members, a few students. And they are also, along with our engineers, some eyes and ears of the buildings on campus, and they can keep us updated on things that are happening in those areas where they work and study. Oh, I'd like to say that we value anybody's input. And, you know, I've had people that are gardeners or grounds, and I've had custodians and various groups that will say, you know, that light was on and, you know, the building's lights were on and things like that and brought it to our attention. So it's just everybody's help. We can do this. It's going to take a group effort. Everybody's working together. Absolutely. And anyone is wants to report any type of oddities <laughs> uh, or anomalies in energy use, sending an email to mypower at berkeley.edu gets our whole team's attention and we get back to everyone within 48 hours and get on the problem. So those types of reports have really helped us resolve some issues. Other than electricity, you deal with natural gas. Steam is a big part of the campus as well. How does water fit into that as issues? Right now we're just focused on electricity in the initial phase. But we'll expand into it, you know, working closely with the sustainability office. And, and water is very important and steam. And Yeah. Our dashboards even have capabilities of showing water usage and steam usage. But right now, we're pretty single-minded in our focus on energy efficiency and reducing, permanently reducing the amount of energy we use on campus. But the campus does have a goal of 
reducing potable water use to 10% below 2008 levels by 2020. And you can find out all about that at sustainability.berkeley.edu. Spectrum is a public affairs show on KALX Berkeley. Our guests are Chuck Frost and Aaron Fenley from the UC Berkeley Energy Office. In the next segment, they talk about new technologies and surprising collaborations. And how does the STEAM system here interact? It's shared, right? It's across a large group of the buildings or not? Because not all the buildings are on the STEAM. Almost all of them. The core, you know, you have some remote buildings that have boilers and things like that. And so you're not using electricity at all to develop the STEAM? Oh, that is correct. So it's just all... It's usually natural gas. Natural gas to do that. Isn't the STEAM a byproduct of the electricity production? You're absolutely right. We have a cogen plant that does, because of the turbine, generate uh, steam that we traditionally use. And then we have uh, boilers that are kind of a backup to that now. So that's then on top of the power you draw from PG&E, the cogeneration? We actually produce that energy and then sell it back to PG&E, to PG&E yes. and then we buy it back. We give 10 cents is the number we typically give because it's kind of a blend and average of what we pay. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in the new technology that you're looking at. I think fault detection has actually been around for a while. With your control systems, you trend data in the building, and then you traditionally would analyze it. An engineer or somebody would look in and analyze it. So you automate that. And so what has really changed, and, and I think it's really good for the industry, the HVAC industry, is you've got people like Google and Microsoft and people that were never in the game before now want to start mining the data from the buildings, analyzing that data for a fee and helping with the fault detection. So it's a game changer. The industry probably in the last five years has changed more than it did 25 years before that. It's amazing. So we got new players in the game. And wireless as well? Wireless is very big too, yeah, the technology. Is it, is it proving to be as reliable as copper wire? I think it is. It's starting to be uh, embraced by everybody. You have different technologies, ones that require repeaters, and then you have mode technology, that self-networking and things like that. So even now we've got pilots going on that are pneumatic thermostats that are really wireless electronic thermostats that go back to a server and a pneumatic combined. And so that allows us to get down to the zone level to really control a building and really look for the energy. A zone would be like the room we're in now. And then with the new wireless lighting that actually it looks at occupancy, it looks at a temperature also. You can start pooling and really getting a good profile of your building when the energy use and when it's occupied and things like that. So those newer technologies are very promising. Obviously, you're going to drive the use and drive efficiency at Cal, and it's going to get harder and harder to reduce the use. Your delta is going to get mm-hmm. smaller yep. and smaller. Yep. Where do you find new efficiencies? We, we like to call it mining for gold nuggets. <laughs> and the nuggets are harder and they're deeper to find as you move forward, that's for sure. But we've been working with uh, Berkeley National Lab and also the Pacific Northwest National Lab and PG&E Energy Center and Facility Dynamics. 
on ways to train our technicians to, to find those golden nuggets. So we're putting the technicians out in the field, as we mentioned, in zones, and they'll learn the buildings, and then they'll get the deeper look at the buildings once they understand the buildings, get more familiar with it. So that's where we're hoping to continue the process. But it is, it, you're absolutely right, it's harder. You keep going, and whether you call it golden nuggets or low-hanging fruit, there's less and less. This orchard's been picked over pretty good. What's the legacy of your data collection and distribution at this point? Well, right now, we started April 2011, and we are just now finishing up our first annual report that it contains all of our, our data from the initiative since the inception. So that will be released as soon as it is approved. It is in its final draft stage. What was the biggest surprise for you when you started this process? I don't know if it was a surprise, but I was just amazed at how much of the small little pockets of research that are going on that are actually looking, people coming forward. And I'd never heard of the CBE before, the Center for Built Environment. And it's just amazing what they have been doing for 20 years. And uh, they're a great group, and they really understand building comfort, and they're looking at new technologies and things like that. So this personal comfort unit, and again, David Kohler and computer science students, that was just a really surprised me that they would be looking at energy and buildings and some of the tools they've shown savings with lighting and, and just the smart apps they were developing and uh, where they could track you through a building. They knew what you liked in lighting and, and environment and they could actually start to modify the building and they interface with the control system at the building over at Citrus and the, uh, it was just amazing to me. It was a surprise. And the biggest challenge going forward in near term for you guys is what? I think for me, it's to keep reminding people that we're not done and we still have to keep remembering to incorporate energy efficiency into our daily actions. One of the most surprising and interesting things in this work has been seeing what people's attitudes towards energy efficiency are. And some people believe that they're doing everything that they possibly can. And we continually find that there's probably even more that you could do somehow or another. So continuing to incorporate that into your daily work routine or your daily coming to school routine is very important. Chuck Frost and Aaron Fenley, thanks very much for being on Spectrum. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. And good luck with saving energy. <laughs> Thank you. If you're interested in reducing energy use at Cal, visit the website mypower.berkeley.edu. There you'll find building dashboards and strategies for taking action. Spectrum shows are also archived on iTunes University. We've created a simple link for you. The link is tinyurl.com slash spectrum. Here at Spectrum, we like to highlight a few of the science and technology events happening locally over the next two weeks. Brad Swift and I present the calendar. The last few days of the Bay Area Science Festival are this weekend. Tonight in San Francisco, Science Improv Blitz, where comics and Ph.D. students synthesize laughs for the sake of amusement and learning. This is happening at the South of Market Street Food Park, 428 11th Street, from 7 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. This is a festival event and free. 
Discovery Day is at AT&T Park. AT&T Park will become a science wonderland when the Bay Area Science Festival concludes again with the free science extravaganza. Last year, more than 30,000 people enjoyed a nonstop program chock full of interactive exhibits, experiments, games, and shows, all meant to entertain and inspire. With more than 150 exhibits, there's something for everyone to unleash their inner scientist. This festival grand finale is Saturday, November 2nd at the home of the San Francisco Baseball Giants at 24 Willie Mays Plaza in San Francisco. It opens at 11 a.m. and runs until 4 p.m. The Mathematical Sciences Research Institute and Berkeley City College will host a free public talk on verifying greenhouse gas emissions by Dr. Inez Fung as part of the lecture series, Not on the Test, The Pleasures and Uses of Mathematics. Dr. Inez Fung is a contributing author to the assessment reports of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a scientific body under the auspices of the United Nations. Dr. Fung will discuss how we measure and verify claims about emissions related to global warming. Dr. Fung is a professor of atmospheric science at UC Berkeley, where she has studied climate change for 20 years and has created mathematical models that represent CO2 sources and sinks around the globe. The event will be held in Berkeley City College Auditorium on Wednesday, November 6th from 7 p.m. to 8.15 p.m. RSVP for the free event online at msri.org. The November installation of the monthly lecture series, Science at Cal, will focus on art inspired by science and mathematics. UC Berkeley professor Carlos Sequin will speak about how math and computers are being used to create new artwork every day. He will also try to answer the nearly insoluble question of whether art or science came first. Professor Sequin began his career at Bell Labs as part of the group that created the first solid-state image sensor compatible with American broadcast television. He later joined the faculty at UC Berkeley, where he eventually focused on the development of computer-aided design tools for architects and mechanical engineers. Professor Sequin has also collaborated with many artists over the years to make the most of computers and the emerging rapid prototyping tools to create geometrical sculptures in a wide range of scales and materials. The lecture will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday, November 16th in Room 100 of the Genetics and Plant Biology Building on the UC Berkeley campus. The lecture is free and open to the public. Here at Spectrum, we like to share our favorite stories about science. Brad Swift joins me for the news. Science Daily reports that scientists at the University of Wisconsin-Madison have constructed a three-dimensional model of the so-called missing link cold virus, rhinovirus C. Rhinovirus C is believed to be responsible for up to half of all childhood colds and is a serious, complicating factor for respiratory conditions such as asthma. Together with rhinoviruses A and B, the recently discovered virus is responsible for millions of illnesses yearly, at an estimated annual cost of more than $40 billion in the United States alone. Because the three cold virus strains all contribute to the common cold, drug candidates that focused on rhinoviruses A and B failed. Antiviral drugs work by attaching to and modifying surface features of the virus. This highly detailed three-dimensional structure for rhinovirus C will give pharmaceutical companies new targets for designing cold-thwarting drugs. UC Berkeley scientists have designed a satellite that could detect large fires across the western United States by snapping a constant stream of photos of the Earth below 
then scanning them for new hotspots that could indicate wildfires. The UC Berkeley team described their plans for the satellite, known as the Fire Urgency Estimator in Geosynchronous Orbit, or FUEGO, in the October 17th issue of the journal Remote Sensing. FUEGO works by analyzing its infrared photos using a computer algorithm to detect differences in the land, especially bright lights that may be fledgling fires. The program can analyze the entire West in minutes. Creators hope that the early detection of wildfires will help to prevent loss of life and widespread damage that usually occur as a result of extensive wildfires. Researchers hope to raise the several hundred million dollars required to build the satellite through a combination of public and private means. The Northern California chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists has awarded Greater Good Science Center Editor-in-Chief Jason Marsh a 2013 Excellence in Journalism Award for his story, Why Inequality is Bad for the 1%, a gripping look at how income disparity can negatively impact both the wealthy and the poor. Relying on cutting-edge research, Jason's story illustrates the ways in which having wealth may adversely affect an individual's ability to be compassionate, understand social cues, and trust others. Those deficiencies can hinder social connection, a key part of our happiness and our physical health. To read the article, go to the website greatergood.berkeley.edu. The music heard during the show was written and produced by Alex Simon. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time. <laughs>